It, it doesn't look like I'm going to be fighting with this thing this time. Oh, give it a give it try and I'm just try and wiggle it. I'm try. I'm not touching Go this ahead. thing. Are you Go ahead. Yeah, it's firm. Whoa. I tightened <laughs> her up for you. Thank you. I what? could hear it. And there's a couple points in the episode where I can hear myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I wake to sleep, and taking my waking slow, I learn by going where I have to go. That was Susian. Yeah, it's it's poetry. You guys ever just like read poetry? No. You guys ever just like read a fucking book? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's why we like music because it doesn't involve reading i don't even mm. like movies with subtitles <laughs> you mean i have to read well i'm co-host jeremy ruggles and i am co-investing in a new business 100 percent organic counterweights for marine vessels we're gonna call them yacht rocks <laughs> I truly That's did brilliant. not know where yeah. you were going with that, but uh, A+. Plus. Thank you. Do you need any investors because I'm 100% behind this concept? Oh yeah, I'm going to need I'm going to need a a few strong people to help me lift these rocks. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there too. And I am co-host Peter Cook, and I had a discussion with 2007 Peter Cook, 27-year-old Peter Cook, who oh. was listening to a lot of challenging, obscure music, and he is not happy with what 41-year-old Peter Cook has become, listening to <laughs> Michael Frank's The Art of Tea, but you know what? Fuck him. Whoa. This, this record rips. True. And this record is... Uh... You know, maybe a bit, bit. Uh, how do I want to put it? Polarizing. It's more polarizing than you might anticipate, but we'll get right. to that later. It's underappreciated in certain audiences. He's got plenty of fans out there, but some people just think that he's terrible. And we're about to maybe change some minds. Maybe not. We'll see. Agreed. I want to start with what I think is. Either the most grabbing of the songs or maybe second most. It's probably my favorite, though. St. Elmo's Fire. Definitely my favorite on this record. Such a good track. It's up there with... I like Mr. Blue a lot, too. That Those two kind of fight for, for the top spot for me. I like Mr. Blue all right, but I can definitely understand why that's, that's your jam. So this is Michael Franks, The Art of Tea. Side A, track four. What year is this? 1976. And the song is again called? St. Elmo's Fire. Correct. All right. Let's get into it. When I start to care, then I find there is no one there. But I think of you And I know we are something new We get high and high Crazy blue Like St. Elmo's fight Love so sharp and flat That it's hard to know just where you're at But now I know I want I want you to be my woman Now I know I want you I want you to be my woman Got the weird 
When the moon's full, I howl at it, but it's mostly fake. I'm in love with the love we make. We get high and high, crazy blue, like St. Elmo's fire. Love so sharp and flat that it's hard to know just where you're. That is some smooth, soulful sound right there. Smooth, soulful, jazzy? Yeah. Does it remind you of any uh, I'd Buy That alum? I was trying to think of who his voice reminds me of, and I haven't been able to pinpoint it yet. Who did you have in mind? Maybe a little Kenny Rankin? Little Kenny Rankin. Not, I mean, sort of the voice, because they're both soft, but... More so the like overall thing going on. That and the Kenny Loggins that we did, mm-hmm. I thought was in a similar vein. Yeah, that one has a, a really similar mix of folk and jazz. And I think Joe Sample's keyboards on this record remind me a lot of Bob James. So there's some definite similarities on those albums. An artist that we have not covered yet, but I'm sure we will at some point, that the voice reminds me a little bit of is Al Stewart. Okay. Year of the Cat. Yeah. I could see that, I guess. I didn't... That's not what came to mind for me, but I it, could see it. It could also just be that period, that era, production, and... Yeah, I think that would have been around the same time. Yeah, like almost pretty close. Yeah. But yeah, this is... Uh, I wasn't really familiar with this album going in, but I was familiar with Michael Franks. I, Sean, I think that's... His album Sleeping Gypsy is one that we found doing the record project uh, when we worked at the record store together about 10 years ago. That very well could be. I don't remember that record specifically during all of that. Uh, What got me into Michael Franks was actually just a few years ago, shortly after quitting the record store and doing some in-person appointment-only record sales out of my garage in Kalamazoo, Someone came out and was buying records and just bought a whole bunch of Michael Franks and was really stoked about it. And everything else he bought, I was familiar with. So I kind of made a mental note that I had to check it out. And, you know, I have, I still have very mixed feelings about Michael Franks because some of those songs like St. Elmo's Fire are just incredible, like top tier, smooth jazz. And then some of the songs are just so gratingly goofy and cheesy that i just can't do it it like makes me angry listening to some of them <laughs> yeah some of the raunch on some of them is like too much yeah there's yeah. some dated language on some of the stuff too there's yeah. some dated language and also so much of this just sounds like the perspective of someone who's never had a real challenge in his entire life like it just sounds like too nice too sterile like coming from a place of happiness and like easy living that I can't fully understand and kind of like makes me mad to listen to sometimes. I don't know if I'm the only one that had these thoughts. That Michael Frank's privilege. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not wrong. Uh, I guess I could jump right in here and say that he was born in La Jolla, California. Did and... you happen to uh, look up any other notable people from that place? No, but I know like Mitt Romney and his car elevator is in La Jolla and there's like a bunch of famous actors and sports people with giant mansions in La Jolla. It's a very well-off area. Yeah, I looked it up. It's like a average income of about $200,000. Yeah, Mitt Romney's $12 million vacation home is there. It was also the boyhood home of Tucker Carlson. Yeah, it's... Yeah. (laughs) 
like San Diego is a wealthy city and it is like the separated wealthy area off of San Diego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you ever visit there when you lived in San Diego? Yeah, they have uh this is kind of hilarious. They have something called the children's pool in La Jolla, which is they built this little cove so that the rich people's kids could swim in the ocean and not have the waves hit them. And naturally, it was the perfect environment for seals uh, having babies and their young ones. So these protected seals moved into the children's pool. And now it's just like where you go to watch seals because nobody's allowed down there because they're protected. Wow. I love that. So, yeah, so, uh, too. yeah the, so Michael Franks is somebody who grew up not having to deal with the adverse conditions of a lake or of an ocean. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a good yeah, metaphor there. Yeah. Yeah. And All right, you tell people when he was born, and then I'll tell you what other celebrity was born on that day. Oh, September 18th, 1944. The same birthday, not the same year as Jason Sudeikis. Oh, Ted Lasso. Yep. <laughs> there you go. All right, continue the bio. Uh, I'm sure that reference won't uh, date itself as time goes on. <laughs> yeah, people listening in 2048 are, are going to be like, oh, yes, that classic television program, Ted Lasso. <laughs> Well, you know, I feel like it's fitting, though, because Ted Lasso is kind of the modern archetypal dad character, and we're talking about the, you know, archetypal smooth jazz dad, so there's some comparisons. It makes sense. Wow, you've really th thought about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. All right. Well, Michael Franks, as mentioned, born in 1944. He was the oldest of three siblings. He had two younger sisters, and his musical journey began at age 14 when he bought a $30 guitar from a department store, and the guitar included with it was six private lessons, and those six private lessons were the entirety of Michael Franks's music education. He was uh, self-taught after that point. Yeah, I was very surprised to learn that. I, I did not think that this was a self-taught guy. I figured it was a music school guy, but yeah, there's a level it's just of sophistication of yeah, that doesn't feel self-taught. Yeah, it's not exactly like thrashing about punk or something. Yeah, or even people who are self-taught that make complex music, it's often very idiosyncratic and like this falls in line with like jazz vibes yeah which you nowadays at least imagine as like people who've gone through a lot of training yeah his teacher was really into major seventh chords yeah <laughs> like we only got six lessons son here's the major seven chords <laughs> so in high school he began strumming and singing some folk rock and he also began getting down with Michigan native poet Theodore Rutke. Mm -hmm. That's who uh, That's who I quoted for my intro. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he's from Saginaw, Michigan. And that informed his later lyrical sophistication. He started using kind of near rhymes and using like shifting meters within the line so it, it inspired him to be a less straight ahead when it comes to lyrical content and what continued that was his study at UCLA where he studied comparative literature and this is also the time he was getting into jazz music and listening to a lot of jazz after he graduated UCLA with a bachelor's. He started teaching at various universities. And while he was teaching, he began some of his, I mean, he began his music career in earnest, composing for films. And he wrote an anti-war musical called Anthems in E-Flat. 
So he wasn't recording an album or anything yet, but he was starting to put music out there into the world whilst he was teaching literature at a bunch of universities. Are you going to mention who the star of his anthems and E-flat musical was? Oh, I didn't write it down. I'm so horrible with actors and actresses, so I... Well, it just so happened to be a pre-Star Wars Mark Hamill while he was, like, in high school. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, he would have been very young at that point. It was, like, 68 or Uh, or so. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, that's about right. Yeah, so Mark Hamill would have been 16, 17, probably. Yeah, so I would just like to point out that this is now the second brazilian music inspired artist who gave work to a leading actor from star wars before star wars (laughs) beautiful yeah i know there were there was a bunch of famous names in the movies he was doing soundtrack work for as well but i didn't write any of them down because wow i don't care what was the harrison ford (laughs) connection wasn't that who the other star wars person was uh sergio mendez hired him to build a recording studio for him that's what that's what it was yeah (laughs) so let's rip into another song here let's do my second most favorite one mr blue not mr blue sky no but yellow no also a good song but not on this album so we're talking a little bit of side b track four read that a lot of Michael Franks's early influences were more in the kind of big band, Tin Pan Alley, Great American Songbook, and swing music fields. And I feel like that track is a pretty good example of some of those early influences showing in his music. Yeah, there's less folk in that one. It's a little more just vocal jazz, and you really hear his, like the timing of the words and everything how it kind of leans jazzy he doesn't have like a crazy range but he has like a a nice palette within in the jazzy feel i would say yeah as much as these songs do all fit well together there's a pretty good variety a variety of smoothness (laughs) true if you had handed me the lyric sheet for that song without me hearing the music, the singing, and asked me to name what songwriter had written that song, I would have guessed Jonathan Richman. Oh, yeah, because because he's name-dropping obscure painters. <laughs> yeah, Cezanne, Chagall. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, wait, these are sound like Jonathan Richman lyrics. Yeah, there's definitely... I mean, they're both kind of booky 
big word, smart guy lyrics. So, yeah, if he had just spelled girlfriend funny in there, then it it would have been (laughs) the exact same thing. True. Good song, though. Good song. Yeah, nice and mellow. Well, you know, it's kind of a little bit like the uh, his label head of Reprise Records, Mr. Frank Sinatra. True. This was a reprise records release. Oh, that was all those R's in a row for you. <laughs> but let's not skip his uh, secret first album. Michael Franks released his eponymous first record in 1973. And it's kind of a lost album in a way. Because it was put out on the Brute record label, which (laughs) it turns out after looking it up is in fact the budget cologne company. (laughs) They had a label for a few years. Oh, I just thought it was Frank's more honest label. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like the cologne company. And I was looking through some of their releases and I hadn't heard of like any of the people putting stuff out on that label so interesting there's a a few names there's like a swamp dog 45 wayne fontana and the mind benders yeah i don't know what that is there's also a sunny terry and brownie mcgee seven inch which is also part of michael frank's early story did you did you catch that (laughs) yeah they made a song of his they recorded a song he wrote a few songs for them and then he's on one of their records playing guitar and banjo Oh, I didn't know he played on their record. Yeah, I don't think like all the tracks, but like a, a few of them. So, yeah, he like was kind of tight with those guys somehow. Nice. Well, he, I mean, not a ton of those were pressed, and I think it's like a valuable record now if you get the original, though it was re-released a decade later under the name Previously Unavailable. <laughs> clever but it was just a re-release of that first album yeah you imagine all the diehard michael franks are like man what a ripoff i already have this one <laughs> yeah diluting the value of my michael franks record yeah <laughs> I'm sure that was said a lot yeah so he uh you know got some attention and was signed to warner brothers and that's how he ended up on the reprise label subsidiary a subsidiary of warner bros and a bunch of his records after this all came out on warner bros proper mm. so i had read a little story of his audition for warner brothers he was working on a soundtrack to a film that i'm assuming warner brothers was releasing so there was executives on the set and he wanted to audition but didn't have a demo on him so he just like straight up played them a few songs on the set of this movie he said he started out by playing some of his more normal songs, thinking those would be the ones that they wanted. But then once he started, once he played Eggplant and Popsicle Toes, the executives were like, hell yeah, we're going to sign you. Those were literally the songs that got him the record deal. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that uh, you know Popsicle Toes is like the closest to a hit. It was like a minor hit. And I noticed you did not include that one in the songs we're going to be hearing today. (laughs) Yeah. It's the only song of his that broke the Billboard 100. Yeah. It was uh, number... I think 43. 43, yeah. Yeah. On the charts. But I don't like that song. I'm going to play Eggplant last just because we play less of the last song and i don't want to subject people <laughs> to too much of it to the entirety of eggplant yeah but they need but, to know what they're getting into with this record yeah it would it would be dishonest right if we didn't. <laughs> yeah we got to give them the total frank's package here i will say the song eggplant sent me into a bit of a internet rabbit hole trying to track down the origins of the eggplant emoji <laughs> which is uh, parallelly used for innuendo in the exact same way Michael Franks is using it for innuendo in this song. So I was like, is there some through line or connection there? (laughs) Is Michael Franks getting royalties off of this emoji? What's going on? (laughs) But what I came to learn 
is that the eggplant emoji originated in Japan, where it is the only reason it was in their emoji set is that it's considered lucky in Japan to dream of Mount Fuji, a falcon, and an eggplant on the first night of the new year. Wow. So apparently that's a big enough thing that people wanted to, you know, have an eggplant emoji to include to, to talk about this superstition. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to know that there's a valid reason for that emoji existing. <laughs> well, yeah, they made it for that, and then Google was like, hey, Japanese telecoms, we want to do emojis. Can we just use, like, your set of emojis? And they're like, yeah, cool, give us a bunch of money. Yeah. And then, you know, when Americans see the eggplant one, it just becomes a sexual thing. Yeah. Yeah. We elevated it, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Elevate the eggplant. <laughs> yeah. And I, I could not find a through line back to Michael Franks from there. I'm like, did he just, like, was he the first? And, like, perhaps... You know, it bubbled back up later or something, but this, a little more research takes us back to Mesopotamia. <laughs> I, I'm starting to think we're getting into a 99% invisible episode here or something. I'll wrap it up quick here, but there's, uh, you know, evidence going back to like Mesopotamia of people using gardens and fruit as innuendo for uh, various sexual things and the earliest direct eggplant usage i found was giovanni de Uden had a very sexual painting of an eggplant in 1518 you did your research here yeah that's that's where i put a lot of my effort was into getting to the bottom of this eggplant thing <laughs> but we'll play the eggplant song last yeah so that you don't have to hear it all Unless you're a pervert, go find it and you can listen to the whole thing. Now, I want I want your best guess on the percentage of Michael Franks fans that realized that that song and many, many other Michael Franks songs are in fact sexual innuendos. Oh, I, <laughs> it feels so obvious to me, but maybe I'm just a pervert. Man. Yeah. You're the one that put a lot of research into the eggplant yeah. emoji. <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> You're obviously the expert in this field, so just give me your best ballpark guess on this percentage here. Yeah. 15%. 15% understand. That makes sense. And now, Jeremy, you and all of our listeners have an interesting talking point to bring up <laughs> when the conversation is <laughs> at a lull. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'll be cool at parties with that. Well, another huge thing with this record dude gets signed to warner brothers and they're like hey why don't you just have access to all our big guns <laughs> yeah how about we just give you the best of the best for studio players yeah so do you want to name some names sean you want me to go down the list well, first, I, I'd just like to remind people of my active theory that if there are more than one member of the Crusaders on a record, it cannot be bad. And there's, there's what, three Crusaders on this album? So, yeah, I, it might have been all three of the Crusaders at the point that this was made. Yeah, and the, the drummer from the Crusaders, I feel like, didn't do nearly as much session work as the other guys, so we got Joe Sample on keyboards, Larry Carlton on guitar, and Wilton Felder on bass. It's practically the same backing band that you hear on, like, half of Steely Dan's songs. Yeah, and a lot of other music, too, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Yeah, so it has the Crusaders as kind of the core then for saxophone, you have both Michael Brecker and David Sanborn, yeah. two like <laughs> iconic sax players. The, like easily the two most iconic guys for smooth jazz of this era. Yeah, I put together instead of trying to like name a list of you know everything Michael Brecker was on. These are people that Michael Brecker was on their album in the year this was released, nineteen seventy six. So just in that year, he's on Elton John, Lauren Nero, George Benson, James Taylor, Don Cherry, Ringo Starr, 
at Midler and others. And honestly, <laughs> if you combine each of those artists you just named, you'd probably come up with Michael Franks. What? <laughs> that list of like artists if you, you combined just all their music yeah like all of those oh, different things saying... you named kind of <laughs> michael franks is like the middle point of that i see where you're going yeah there. okay yeah getting too far ahead of you i'm sorry take about 10 percent off the top yeah there we go david sanborn's on everything as well he he was on bowie records carly simon bob james the boss aretha franklin so on so on so on forever and ever and ever you also got Larry Bunker on vibraphone. He did a lot of stuff with Bill Evans Trio. Also jammed with Tim Buckley, Stan Getz, Natalie Cole, Kenny Rogers, Donna Summer. Another huge name that's been all over the place. On drums, John Guerin, who played with Joni Mitchell. Someone Sean really digs, J.D. Souther, Mm -hmm. Joan Baez, Graham Parsons, who Peter really digs. Oh, yeah. And me and Sean, probably. (laughs) Sarah Vaughn and I'd Buy That alum, Melanie. He was also on a couple Kenny Rankin records. He was on Like a Seed. (laughs) Oh, sick. Yeah. And finally, you got Jerry Steinholtz on Congos. You know, he just played with people like Diana Ross and Gladys Knight and, you know, just a few, you know, famous people. And for the beautiful picture of Michael Franks on the album cover here. Yeah. Sitting cross-legged, looking super normie core. That was done by Ed Thrasher. Oh, yeah. Who did a lot of iconic album covers. He worked with Jimi Hendrix, the Doobie Brothers, Van Morrison, Grateful Dead, the Beach Boys. So it was star-studded affair, this thing. Star-studded affair to make the art of tea. (laughs) So let me launch us into yet another jam. I want to do I Don't Know Why I'm So Happy I'm Sad because that's a title of a song that Jeremy's going to pick. Yeah, it sounds like a <laughs> song that you would write. Yeah, maybe that one. And like if he had a song called Mr. Blue on here, you'd probably pick that one. Yeah, and I did. I picked them both. <laughs> if he had a song about an eggplant, <laughs> probably do a ton of research about that. Yeah, a song about getting high. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, here is... I don't know why I'm so happy I'm sad. Love is always blue 
I saw a lot of reviews of Michael Frank's music and this album in particular, where they talked about how his vocal style was what really set him apart and made him completely unique amongst his peers. And only a few kind of correctly pointed out that a lot of this was uh, bossa nova influence. If you listen to a lot of the singers in that field, especially like, you know, about 10 years before this, it's a very... Uh, laid back kind of airy vocal style and I feel like he took that and adopted it perfectly to this kind of smooth jazz style also on his follow-up record to the Sleeping Gypsy you can hear a lot more of the bossa nova influence going on but I mean particularly if you listen to artists like Astro Gilberto or Antonio Carlos Jobim guys that he was very influenced by you'll definitely hear that yeah, Stan Getz as well was a big influence for him. Yeah, the Getz Gilberto record. And like cool jazz as well, you know, like Dave Brubeck or I'd Buy That alum, Wes Montgomery. I also saw that his parents listened to a lot of Peggy Lee when he was a kid. Yeah, and other swing. That's where a lot of the swing vibes came from, sure. apparently. yeah. Something I found quite interesting to go back to his polarizing elements. I read this. I don't even know what to call it. It was like a news article, but it really just seemed like an apology from a guy who did programming for a smooth jazz radio station. And he gets into, you know, Michael Franks should be like the poster boy for smooth jazz. You know, he's a legacy act by the time all these smooth jazz stations start popping up in the 80s. And his music in the 80s started to bend more in that direction but you don't actually hear michael franks on those stations very often and that's because he play tests horribly with the audiences that listen to smooth jazz stations he was in like the bottom 10 percent of things they would play test so <laughs> He didn't get much airtime because those were infamously corporate stations that would just play things by the numbers. Interesting. We would be remiss to not mention that he also was, I don't know if what the right word is, a figure in the Quiet Storm radio format, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely read that he was considered like an architect of that sound. And okay, maybe, yeah. maybe he wasn't featured on the, the smooth jazz radio of the 80s, but when the Quiet Storm radio show started in D.C. Uh, just a few years after this, actually, I think it was like 77 when it started, the format was you know, named after the Smokey Robinson album from 1975, Quiet Storm. But Michael Franks, in a lot of ways, was kind of that, perfect sound and got some play on there yeah and definitely leaned into the uh, innuendo aspects and the jazzy sophisticated parts mm -hmm. yeah he's he's like everything in that world wrapped into one i feel like and also one of the few white artists that is notable in the quiet storm genre it's pretty much just like him and bobby caldwell that tracks so is, is it time for me to debut a new segment on I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Oh, a new segment? A hot new you didn't segment. You even tell us. <laughs> I've got a new one, boys. I think it's going to be a hit. This new segment is called Sean Reads All Caps User Reviews. Oh, boy. Yeah, let's hear it. All right, I got three really good, genuine, online-sourced user reviews. Ready? So because these are all caps, you know, I'm... I kind of struggled to really get the tone right, but I'm going to do my best. So here goes. Well, just uh, this means for you, uh, for listeners out there, these are written in all capital letters. Yes. <laughs> reviews, just user reviews online. Yes. So, yeah, so turn, turn your dials up while he reads these, and then you can turn it back down when he's done. <laughs> <laughs> to, to get the full effect. <laughs> okay, review number one. Michael Frank's album is truly amazing. I used to own his jazzy music and lyrics are so mellow from this jazzy fellow and I truly miss hearing them all. Mr. Blue, 
Popsicle Toes, Night Movies, The Lady, Wants to Know, I Don't Know Why I'm So Happy But Sad, Just to Name a Few, Yes, He's in a Class Act of His Own Too, and His Music is Great to Have Around. Are these all caps, no punctuation? Yeah, and like very weird line breaks, and like sometimes there's commas, but like, you know, it's a struggle to really figure out how to read these properly, but I'm doing my best. Oh, that one, you uh, represented that perfectly. Cool. Because I did see that one beforehand. Nice. (laughs) You did did show us these reviews, you just didn't tell us. (laughs) All right, well, these next two you guys haven't seen, so get ready. Okay. All right. Now this is a very hot jazzy classic hit from another great jazz recording artist, Michael Franks with Eggplant. I do believe it was the late (laughs) 70s because I love music, great music to my ears. Wow. There you go. Uh, That person had no idea what Eggplant's about. I guess we could also call this segment me doing like a David Lynch from Twin Peaks impersonation yeah, reading user that, reviews that, that's what that sounded like <laughs> all right so this next one already breaks the format slightly because only a few of the words are in all caps but i feel like it still counts there's also a lot of words where the first letter is capitalized and i don't know why and anytime there's the word four or two they are using the number instead of the word also the word someone is spelled s-o-m-e number one just just so you guys can get like a good visual idea of what was, this is like. Was this uh, review written before April 21st, 2016? Um, I don't, I didn't look at when it was posted. That's, I just thought maybe Prince had written it. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. But anyway, here's the third and final review. I love this song so much. It was dedicated to me by the man who stole my heart. For someone who can throw a smile on a face drenched in tears and make it look real. This song and the memories it brings to my soul always produces a genuine and long-lasting smile in and on me. I love you to the moon and back. And I apologize for doing you wrong, for lying to you, and hurting all of us. (laughs) I know, I feel like I just read something or heard something that was way too private yeah that <laughs> well, had a confessional vibe mixed in you're not wrong but they did post it as a public review so here it is they <laughs> they wanted this to be read <laughs> i must say phenomenally performed especially on that last one Sean. thank you thank you i think this is going to be a new hit segment i'm very excited about it yeah yeah <laughs> i like it a plus all right cool i, th- I think that also captures the polarizing nature of Mike Michael Franks because the people who love him love it. Yes. And then a lot of people don't like it. So he had this kind of weird thing where he obviously had a strong fan base, but like you said, he was still kind of an underground artist. You know, you had to be a smooth jazz head to really know about Michael Franks. Not everybody was hip to this dude. I feel like you see him all the time in the dollar bin though yes yes definitely one of the easiest records we will talk about that to find in a dollar bin i think that was you know maybe if you and i didn't get into sleeping gypsy together sean i might have just at one point put it on because i saw it all the time yeah and the (laughs) artwork on that one is cool too yeah i think I, i was like this this is cool artwork i gotta see what it sounds like and uh that was probably about the time that i realized that i was coming out of this whole gotta listen to challenging music <laughs> phase <laughs> and when when stuff like that started to a stuff like this well, started to appeal to me i mean sometimes it can be challenging to get into smooth stuff you know you can have different definitions <laughs> of what confirm. challenging is yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's, that's true that's true i mean that i'm sure there's a lot of you know there's probably even people listening right now that are like this this is crap yeah (laughs) these guys have finally gone too far (laughs) (laughs) we hear you listeners we understand but we're in a different place than you are right now yeah just hang in there one day it's gonna click (laughs) that's this is a funny thing about while i've been listening to this episode it's coincided 
exactly somehow with me getting into metal music for the first time in my life. <laughs> I've like never listened to metal. So I'm like alternating between just the most brutal fast metal seems to be what I like. And then like cutting back to Michael Franks to do some, <laughs> some listening and research. So wouldn't have it any other way. Listening, listening to a little blood incantation, some blood incantation full of hell who I'm going to see. And uh, Panopticon is a uh, one I've been really digging. So getting into all those weirdos for the first time. But that's neither here nor there. Are you doing your normal segment, Sean? Yeah, I got segments gonna for days. You're going to recommend some. Yeah. <laughs> Two things I wanted to point out before that, though. My favorite description of Michael Franks that I read today was <laughs> one review described him as a dorky Casanova with a Norton anthology under one arm. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> spot on. Which I thought was absolutely beautiful. But then tied with that, you know, we've talked a lot about these kind of witty, ironic, goofy lyrics. Did you guys think about how his narrative in lyrics is actually very similar to a lot of country music? I mean, I could see that. It's or it's sort of like the folk sort of structure. Yeah, it's got that, that cleverness and that like wordplay that you hear from some folk and country artists. Yeah. 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 Anyways, similar records that you can find on the cheap. There's a lot of artists we've talked about that are similar to this. And we, as we've mentioned, there's the Smokey Robinson quiet storm record from 1975. We talked about one of the follow-up records that he did to that on a previous episode. Another record that Jeremy did a while ago, Roberta Flack's feel like making love from 1975, I feel like has some interesting comparisons, especially because Roberta had a little bit of that folk and pop influence mixed in there as well. Yeah. And that sophisticated jazziness and exactly when she sings a little softer on. Exactly. Kenny Rankin, who we've mentioned specifically his 1977 album, the Kenny Rankin album the earlier stuff is a little more psych folk and then he gets like more pop and more string laden as he goes on in that album particularly i think is a really good comparison to the sounds you're hearing on here and finally an artist that we covered on the very first episode that i love to bring up as much as i can jimmy spheris <laughs> his last record that is commercially available ports of the heart from 1976 is actually quite similar to this it goes more in that yacht rock pop further away from the kind of weird renaissance psychedelic stuff he was doing and i feel like if he'd have lived longer he could have potentially been a quiet storm star you know i recently watched one of his sister's documentaries i watched the decline of western civilization part three which is the gutter punk crust punk i haven't seen that one one yet just watch it on youtube it's it's so strange now that i have like the jimmy spheris connection yeah <laughs> it was it was already weird enough that she was the wayne's world director <laughs> yeah. and now there's the jimmy spheris factor interesting it's worth a watch you know if you if you feel like going into that world for an hour and a half wow we are so deep in the weeds right now <laughs> well that's you know, I covered, I mean, I should say Michael Franks went on to record like 16 or 17 more studio albums and yeah. as recently as 2018. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And he's still playing out a bit. So he's still with us, still kicking. If you're out on the West Coast, you can probably catch him at some point if you watch. And yeah, check out Michael Franks when you find him. And yeah, yeah, he's a you very will find him. You will. And he's a very consistent artist. Like if this is something that appeals to you, the next few records he put out are very similar. The closer you get into the the 80s, he gets a little more electronic, but even then it's really interesting and there's always some good songs. Yeah, the lyricism remains strong. The production in some of the 80s stuff is like a little too much for me yeah, still yet, yeah. but you guys keep walking me hand in hand down that smooth jazz aisles and <laughs> Who knows? It might be my favorite stuff soon. Yeah. Before you know it, but... you're going to be bopping to Passion Fruit from 1983. Oh, boy. Yeah. You'll be rotating between the history of the human race by blood incantation. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the hidden history of the human race? 
Uh, yeah, uh, one of the yeah. two. Something similar to that. <laughs> <laughs> the one with the alien on the cover. Yeah, that's been used by a bunch of people, too. Like, they are not the first <laughs> band to use that for the album cover. Yeah. So it's, it's been throwing people off when I posted it. They're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, back into the weeds we go. Yeah. Wow. Let's wrap it up. I'm going to leave you with eggplant because I hate you all. (laughs) Just kidding. But it feels dishonest to not have, as you mentioned, you know, the, the innuendo because that is a, it's pretty common in a lot of these. Yeah. Including his hip popsicle toes, which is, I don't know. (laughs) Feet just gross me out in general. So it just, Yeah, pretty soon we're going to uh, feature the Toe Fat album, and Jeremy's going to love the cover for that one. No. <laughs> so, yeah, we we talked a lot about this already, so I don't know this track that we're going to feature going out, so I don't know if there's much more to say. Nope. It's side A, track two. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I am Peter Cook. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Don't forget to eat your eggplants raw with mayonnaise. (laughs) Whenever I explore the land of yin, I always take one on the chin. And now this lioness has almost made me tame I can't pronounce her name but eggplant is her game Lady sticks to me like white on rice She never cooks the same way twice Maybe it's the mushrooms Maybe the tomatoes can't reveal her name, but eggplant is her game. When my baby cooks her eggplant, she don't read no book. She's got a geoconda kind of dirty look. When my baby cooks her eggplant, about 19 different ways Sometimes I just have it raw with me